Hi, welcome to the Abilene Beatles podcast. I'm your host, Michael M. So glad you could join me for another episode. Here we are at episode eight, and I'm so excited about today's episode. I had an absolutely amazing interview, and I'm so excited to share it with you. My guest today is Alan Cross. Now, Alan is originally from Stonewall, Manitoba, and he started his life in radio in 1980 at the University of Winnipeg. You know, he's worked at various radio stations over the past 30 years, and he's currently at CFNY in Toronto. Alan is internationally known for his syndicated radio program, The Ongoing History of New Music. It's been around since 1993 and is an absolutely amazing program. Now, he's done over 900 episodes, and as a matter of fact, he's closing in on 1,000. Now, he has spoken to hundreds of artists and covered some really interesting music topics. If you're a music fan, no matter where you are in the world, I highly recommend checking it out. I consider it to be an elevated education in all things music. Now, Alan also has a website called A Journal of Musical Things. It's a must-see for fans. It's updated daily with the latest music news and blogs by Alan. Now, Alan's also an author, and he's written numerous books, including The Alternative Music Almanac, The Making of Pretty Hate Machine, and the Downworld Spiral, Over the Edge, The Revolution and Evolution of New Rock, and 20th Century Rock and Roll, Alternative Rock. Alan's place in Canadian radio history is absolutely set in stone. There's no question about that, and he's not even done yet. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Hey, Alan, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. So glad to have you here today. Really, really excited. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the, the my, my podcast, uh, you know, you've had the ongoing history of new music, and I've been a fan of yours for years and years. And one of the things that I have loved, and I know a lot of my my friends have loved, is is that even if you're talking about maybe a particular artist or or subject that isn't always the most appealing at the time, you make it appealing um, well, <laughs> with the, the you know the, the stories and the facts, and it's that sort of calm, soothing voice. It's like hey, what I'm telling you, you'll get this. So I, I really appreciate that. And I wanted to thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. I mean, that's a pretty high bit of praise right there. Uh, if you uh, are listening to something that you don't really care about, or at least you don't think you care about, and then you end up listening. You know, one of the, I'll tell you what the reason for that was. I was a, a big subscriber uh, to Mojo magazine out of the UK. And uh, I went to buy the issue once and who was on the cover, but ABBA. And I was like, oh God, I don't, I don't care about ABBA at all. But then um, I bought the magazine anyway, and I ended up reading the article, and it was really good. And I learned a bunch of stuff. So it's like, okay, maybe maybe sometimes somebody needs to sit me down and go, listen, stupid, this is interesting. You may not think so, but you're wrong. So that's 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 high praise. And it's, and like the way you do it, it's interesting that you got that from the magazine and, and, and sort of picked that up and, you know, you've been doing it all these years and it's, it's working for you and it's like really great. So, you know, when we talk about the Beatles and that's what we're here to talk about today, there are so many areas of conversation and it, it just, the conversation could be endless. So we'll just sort of start the conversation with some questions and, and we'll see what goes from there. So let's talk about their breakthrough onto the music scene and how it affected Britain and then eventually North America. Do you, do you think the world was really ready for that? 
Well, it, the timing was right. Uh, Britain was coming out of wartime austerity and rationing. Uh, the National Service had to stop just in time, so none of the Beatles ended up having to go into the army. Um, JFK had just been assassinated in in uh, Dallas, and that was sending a pall over everyone. The, it was the Cold War. It, it was a it could be could, one of the darkest times. I mean, don't forget we had just come out of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, uh, and then these these four unusually likable guys out of England with their their funny accents and these incredibly catchy songs um, who were doing things not like everybody else where you would have professional songwriters and arrangers come up with the songs and then find somebody who would sing those songs. No, the Beatles were creating their own music. They were writing their own music and performing their own music. This was a huge novelty. And uh, American music at that time had also gotten a little stale. I mean, there were some garage band stuff like with the Kingsmen and Louie Louie. But, uh, you know, we were in the post Elvis goes into the army era, which was, which meant that Elvis had pretty much passed his prime for, for a bit, at least until 68 or 69. Uh, and he was making these terrible movies. So there, there was, there was this gap, there was this vacuum in North America that was looking for something to fill it. And then we let's also enter uh, demographics into the equation because you had, you know, the baby boomers were, you know, teenagers. Uh, they were looking for something to set themselves apart from their parents. And again, these cute guys with these weird haircuts and strange accents uh, and long hair uh, <laughs> were, were, were coming to annoy uh, the parents of North America. Perfect. Just perfect. Yeah. How much do you think their personality played a part in how well they were accepted. Oh, incredible. I mean, all you have to do is go back and look at that press conference from 1964 when they get off that Pan Am flight in New York before they appear on the Ed Sullivan show. I mean, nobody, there was nobody being that fun and irreverent uh, on the music scene. I don't know of anybody. I mean, maybe there was, but certainly no, nobody did it as well as those guys. And it seemed to be effortless. You know, uh, they were a gang and they could finish each other's sentences and they seemed to really like each other and they weren't intimidated by, by anything. They just said, you know, here we are. Woo. Let's have a good time. It, it was, it was infectious. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Their, their personality was, I mean, even as a young kid seeing them, that was the first thing you saw them being funny and, and interacting with the journalists, which, you know, that didn't happen up until then. No, um, the... I, I remember I was 18 months old when the Beatles first appeared on the Ed Sullivan show, 18 months. And, you know, 77 million or so people watch it in the United States. And I would imagine that a similar percentage of people who had televisions in Canada also saw that because it was, uh, I think the Ed Sullivan show was carried on CBC. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Everybody would have been watching it. And uh, my mother and my father had heard about this terrible, subversive band from England with the terrible haircuts. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, just stupid lyrics and songs. Um, but I, they apparently sat down to watch it. And my father, I am told, made sure I was put to bed early because he didn't want the Beatles being a bad influence on me. <laughs> oh, my. Now, many years later, I've had interviews with Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, and I've actually talked to to the four 
Uh, and my father just doesn't understand the appeal. Never did. So, so we talk about that moving on to their influence on the youth in the 60s and that musical fire that sort of started for many people that day. Um, oh, God. And we've heard the stories from many musicians, you know, uh, Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Tom Petty. Um, what are some of the stories that you've heard about their, their, um, their influence? Johnny Ramon. Uh, he sat down with his parents to watch the Beatles and Ed Sullivan and uh, decided right there and then that that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to play, be a, a guitar player. It took him until 1974 to actually pick up a guitar and become a, and get into a band. But uh, he recalls seeing the Beatles that on TV and thinking, yep, this is going to be something, this is what I want to do, or I could do that. What you know, a combination of those two things inspire. I don't know how many people. I mean, if you look back at uh, guitar sales, electric guitar sales in 1964, I mean, they they went up by triple digits. Uh, Rickenbacker, who uh, had sent a representative to the Beatles in New York at the Plaza Hotel, man, you know, John, uh, no, it was George was rather ill. I think he had a, a Bad sore throat or something. Yeah, I think he had tonsillitis or tonsillitis, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So they managed to get into his hotel room. They gave him one of the first 12 string Rickenbackers. And he thought it was great. And before too long, both him and John were playing Rickenbacker guitars, an American guitar, rather than the, you know, the some of the stuff that they were getting out of Germany or some of the, the knockoff stuff that was being made in the UK. Um, they they were playing American guitars and sales of of, of Epiphones, which is what uh, John was playing. So those went up, and so did Rickenbackers. They just went through the roof. So Somebody was done... playing those guitars, and somebody was doing something with them. So there you go. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, I mean, and, and that association with the Beatles alone, that's all they had to do was be associated with it, and, and everything would, would go up. Yeah. So, you know, you've done hundreds of episodes of the ongoing history of new music. I was actually taking a look at it, uh, you know, before we spoke and it is astonishing the amount of <laughs> history you've put out. It, 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 I had no idea. I honestly had no idea until I looked at the Wikipedia page and I'm like, wow, that is a lot. So uh, it is a lot. And I finished writing or I'm going to finish writing episode 953 tomorrow. That is fantastic. Almost at yeah. a thousand there, sir. Next year. So, you know, out of the, the hundreds of musicians that you've covered and the stories that you've heard, you know, you mentioned the Johnny Ramone one, without maybe specifically hearing it from them, what other bands and musicians do you feel had that Beatles sound? I don't know if they had the sound, but they had the attitude. And I think the answer to that is just about everyone. I once talked to Ozzy. And, uh, you know, see, Ozzy, I mean, you this dark music, you're Prince of Darkness, you know, Sun, and, you know, wow, I mean, where did this all come from? Well, it all begins with the Beatles, of course. What? And, and he went on and on and on about how the Beatles were such an influence on, on his life. And stylistically, you can't hear it. You don't, you, don't, you don't see it at all. But there would be no Black Sabbath if... <laughs> if there wasn't the Beatles. I mean, there are a lot of uh, Beatles. Uh, you know, they have that. So that, that well, depends what era you're talking about. But there's a lot of bands with the, with the jangly guitar sound, uh, you know, pre-66. Uh, then, you know, we could you could look at the proggy sort of bands that, that were inspired by Sgt. Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour. And, and then if you look at something like Abbey Road, I, I mean, somebody asked me once what 
you, what I thought the Beatles would sound like had they stayed together after 1970. And I said, they would have probably evolved into a, um, like a, a super tramp sounding or a steely Dan sounding type band with a little bit more, uh, pop a pop edge to them. So, so again, the Beatles were the number one band of all time. They will always be the number one band of all time. And anybody who says that they were influenced by the Beatles either doesn't realize it or is lying. Very, very good statement. So let's talk about, uh, you know, social changes. So, you know, one of the big things for the Beatles was, was civil rights and the stances they took uh, to support African-Americans. You know, they were the first big name uh, to insist that there was non-segregated audiences. Um, and that happened in Jacksonville in September 1964. Mm-hmm. Um, how important, I mean, we still have this problem today, unfortunately. It's, it's an issue that sadly will not go away and, and we wish it would. But how much of a difference do you think at that point the Beatles deciding to take that stance really made? Depends where you lived. If you were in the U.S. South, that was a really big problem. And everyone from politicians to preachers were denouncing the Beatles as tools of Satan because they were upsetting the status quo. And that's where you had the, you know, the Beatles record burnings and smashings and, and all that sort of stuff. And, of course, John didn't really help matters much by, you know, declaring the Beatles to be better, you know, more popular than Jesus. Although that quote, for example, it, you know, we don't have to go over how badly that quote was taken out of context, but that all fed into what was going on in, in, in the U.S. South. And, you know, the Beatles were all, if it weren't for the black music coming out of America in the 1950s that they bought at NEMS, there was, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no way the Beatles would exist. So they understood, like all British invasion bands understood, that what they had done is take African-American blues music from the UK, turn it around, filter it through their own filters and send it back to America. I mean, that's what it was. So they, you know, they, owed, they knew they owed everything to uh, black artists in, in, in America. And, um, you know, they were never really super overt about it because there were other things that I guess were top of mind, you know, John and his anti-war protests and all the rest of it. But, you know, Paul writing a song like Blackbird for the... Um, for the for the white album i mean that's that's very much a civil rights song you know they did what they could and you know given the constraints given the fact that they were foreign and given the fact that uh some of their some of those liberal opinions would have met with been met with violence yeah no absolutely so you know you mentioned the the we're more popular than jesus yes. comment by john lennon so of all the controversies, and the four that I've sort of mentioned are, uh, you know, Jesus bigger than the, we're bigger than Jesus. Uh, be, Paul is dead. The mm. uh, the Manila fiasco and uh, the Manson murders. Which one do you feel sort of was the biggest controversy for the Beatles? Okay, so that that covers a period from what sixty five through to sixty nine, really. Yeah. So that's that's uh, those are four big stories. In a very short period of time, um, they were detached from the Manson murders, so uh, they were only dragged into it by by a crazy person. I think the bigger than Jesus thing is the one that's been the most enduring, simply because uh, it was a, taken from a direct quote by one of the band members as he was surrounded by the other three band members, uh, and people were looking at the time to take the, these sorts of statements out of context. Like, you know, look how godless this rock and roll thing is. 
the one of the members of one of the biggest bands in the world just admitted or just said or just asserted or just claimed that they were bigger than Jesus. How dare he? Well, again, you know, if we go back and look at the whole interview and understand what John was trying to say, that's not what he said. Yeah. So, um, I would think that that would be the biggest one because it did set off an, uh, you know, protests across middle America. I don't know if it did anything in Canada. It must have done something in Canada, but I don't remember hearing anything about it because we didn't really document that part of our history very well. But I would consider that one to be John's big one. And and one thing I've talked about before, and, and I'd love to hear your take on it, and maybe you're in agreement with me or not. If an artist made that statement today, it's it wouldn't be wouldn't even be no, newsworthy. Not at all. But that's you know fifty five years ago, so it was a different time. Yeah. So let's talk about the drug culture with the Beatles. We know as you know later on in later albums, it was huge. Do you think that? Without the drugs, we would have gotten the same results. Would have been would have been better or worse. Actually, I don't think we would have. Um, famously, whether it's true or not, the Beatles are introduced to marijuana by Bob Dylan at Buckingham Palace. <laughs> I don't know. Good story. <laughs> if it isn't true, it should be. Um, but I, I think what this allowed them to do, you know, you, we can debate about the mind-expanding properties of, of, of drugs, but I think it certainly allowed them to um, decompress and disassociate. And decompress from the pressures of touring, the fans, and all the stuff that they were being asked to do. I mean, if you look at their schedule, you know, it, was, it was absolutely brutal. No wonder they, you know, it was incredible. So that allowed them to relax. Uh, the other thing was it was clandestine, so it gave them a bit of a rebel era, which is not a bad thing. And third, the, the idea of disassociating. I mean, you know, all these guys, you know, for all of their lives and continuing today, all they've ever been are Beatles. That's all they've been. Paul has been a Beatle since he was 15. He knows nothing else. Yep. Uh, so... I, I think maybe with, with some of the LSD stuff or whatever, they were allowed to disassociate from their, from their, their existence. And, um, and again, I'm not advocating any of this, but I, I think it from, you know, knowing a little bit what I know about neuroscience and the use of, of, uh, mind altering drugs, uh, it can create new pathways in the brain, which may lead to greater creativity or insight. So take it from there. Are, are you can argue for or against that. It's just out there. So uh, let's move on to spirit, spirituality and, you know, the transcendental meditation, which became very big for them, you know, just before Brian died and then more so after Brian died, especially with George. George really, really embraced it. You know, well, he's I'm gonna, the, I'll interrupt you right there. I think sure. what happened was they got into spirituality because Brian died. And, you know, Brian had been their their overriding leader and mentor and manager from, you know, from the early sixties, he was like a father figure to these guys. He was the only one who could tell the band, stop, don't do that or do it again, or do more of that, or this is what you're going to do. So Brian dies suddenly. What's that? Um, February 67, 67, 67. Yep. So they yep. die. And then shortly into, I guess it's, in, is it April? Maybe it very shortly there. No, no, it's, it's a year later. Uh, they, they end up uh, with the Maharishi in, in India. 
because they were leaderless. They were rootless. They had no idea. Again, these guys had been Beatles since they were teenagers. They only knew, uh, you know, how how to do something when they were told to do it outside of making the music. They had no one. Now they were guide. They were, they were absolutely rudderless. They, they glommed on to the, the Maharishi uh, and, and that somehow for a time being anyway, replaced Brian as, as a guiding light in, in, in their lives and in their careers. Uh, George got really deep into it, obviously. Uh, Ringo didn't buy into it at all. John and Paul left early and never really, you know, got back into it. But it, it affected George for the rest of his life. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 you know, there's there's some question as to whether the Beatles, you know, uh, getting into uh, the meditation and um, uh, the Eastern culture, if that started the movement in the States, in California, with all the, the hippies coming up. Because one of the things that I've read about is George visiting California at one point, going to California, and he was he wasn't pleased because what he had hoped to find is what he had seen in India, where people were very they were into meditation and and, and sort of a you know a higher thinking, but as he, he said, it was it was just a bunch of hippies just getting completely drugged out of their mind, he, and he was really disappointed by the whole experience, so. You know, you talked about the Brian thing, so I'll bring up one of my questions now. At what point do you think was the beginning of the end for the Beatles, if you had to pinpoint it? Was it the Brian Epstein death? I, I think so. Now, the that was a very, very big one because it altered the trajectory of the band in a billion different ways. So I, I would, and one of those trajectories ended with a few more great albums and then a breakup in uh, 1970. Now, the thing, I, I have my own theory about when the Beatles really broke up. So we go to June of 1969 and there's a promoter in Toronto who's coming up with this event called the Great Toronto Rock and Roll Revival at Varsity Stadium. And it's loaded with all these people from the 1950s, now Gene Vincent and Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry, plus Alice Cooper, who nobody knew about, and The Doors, who were the headlining act. And he had borrowed some money from, uh, let's just say some, they didn't have a, main, uh, a street location, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and he wasn't selling any tickets. So in desperation, just before the festival, like a couple of days before the festival, he calls the Apple Corps offices and said, I need to speak to John Lennon. And just by sheer happenstance, John was standing by the receptionist desk. He takes the call. And John says to this other, well, John Brewer, the guy in, in Toronto, says to John Lennon, hey, you want to come and play uh, in Toronto? And for whatever reason, John says, yeah, sure, I'll, we'll be right there. Hangs up the phone, realizes he doesn't have a band. So... Famously, he gets Eric Clapton and Klaus Furman and Alan White, and they get on the plane, they're rehearsing on the plane, they go over there and they play. Now, this, when John got there, two things occurred to him. Number one, he hadn't played outside the Beatles since the Quarrymen, before Paul joined the band. There had been no outside performance. Second, both he and Yoko were uh, terrible heroin addicts at the time, and they were getting dope sick. And third... Paul or John was absolutely terrified that he would embarrass himself in front of his rock and roll idols. 
you know, the Chuck Berries, the Gene Vincents, the Jerry Lee Lewis's. Uh, but after he almost didn't come out on stage, he didn't, I think he played second last. The doors were the closer, so they played last. Uh, he, he was, he was almost dragged out on the stage because he had been throwing up backstage because he was nervous and because he was right. going to withdraw. Yep. And uh, he gets on stage and they do, uh, you know, some Yoko Ono stuff. They do some, some, stuff from from you know the rock and roll catalog a bunch of covers and all the rest of it and about two or three songs in john starts enjoying himself a lot and people are showing him an awful lot of love and he's thinking "Ooh, maybe i can do this outside the beatles so that september they have the meeting you know what are we going to do after uh you know we've, we've got a few more things that we have to deal with 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 let it be but what are we going to do so john in that meeting and there's the three guys ringo's on the phone uh, and he says, I want a divorce. And that happens after he comes back from Toronto, realizes that he can do things on his own and decides that he would really like to move on and try other things. So in Paul not getting along, there's the whole Alan Klein thing. Um, they had been writing separately for, for years by this point. Uh, Ringo was always threatening to quit. John was always really insecure and, and felt like the, the, you know, the, fourth wheel on this whole thing so john just like that quick. but I, you know what we're going to do all this other stuff we're going to live up to our commitments and then we are going to uh we'll, we'll work this out after we've done everything that we're supposed to do and everything that we said we we're going to do uh meanwhile paul goes ahead records a solo album and on the day it's released beatles have broken up and john i mean that really i don't know if that was ever repaired yeah that was that was one of uh the biggest cheese offs to to john is you know he He's like, I, I wanted to leave all this time and I didn't. And he just, I think he was upset that he just didn't be the, get to be the newsbreaker that day. Yeah, yeah, well, he, he wanted to be, he wanted to be the one to pull the trigger because, you know, it was his band. Although by this time, McCartney was the guy that, uh, I mean, if you've seen Let It Be or, um, or seen uh, Get Back, get back. Uh, yeah. it's Paul, it's Paul who was in charge of the band. Definitely a driving force. There's no question about that. I mean, and you can see that in there. What did you think of uh, the Get Back documentary? Well, put it this way. Um, I was going to enjoy it because I always love seeing how things come together. No, 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 uh, no, no pun intended. <laughs> but I, I tell you, my wife, who is not nearly the music fan that I am, sat raptured by the, the whole thing uh, all through all nine hours. She couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, that, that'll you, tell you something. Yeah, and you hit it right on the nail. There is a, a lot of, uh, I followed a bunch of Twitter after it came out and there was people who were not Beatle fans that were like, this is like one of the greatest documentaries ever. This is, this, it's so, it, um, you know, uh, just consuming and people <clears throat> really loved it. So I was really pleased with it. I wish there was more <laughs> people were like, <laughs> but, but that wasn't enough. I'm like, apparently Peter Jackson has a, like a 14 hour director's cut. Uh, let's oh, that'll be out that on, out. that'll be out on Blu-ray at some point. I'm sure. I, I really, really hope so. So, uh, to circle back, uh, you know, about, um, what was the beginning of the end, both points, you, you definitely hit it on the head there. Um, you know, the, the Brian Epstein passing away definitely was the starting of the end. There's no question about that. And then, you know, John coming to Toronto, that was when John sort of like, yeah, I, I think I'm sort of done with this. And if you had the two leaders not really in it, well, it's, it's eventually it's going to crumble, which it did. So what do you feel was the Beatles, the Beatles' biggest contribution to the world? And I know that's a, a big question. Ooh. Well, I think they saved rock and roll. 
you know, remember that when the Beatles start making waves in England in 1963, rock and roll is less than a decade old. Elvis had come and gone. He had gone to the army. He had come out, and he wasn't much fun anymore. The world seemed to be going to hell. And remember that you got to remember that in the early 1960s, there was a very there were two things happening. First of all, people were saying that rock and roll was a fad, and that it was it was going to go away. Uh, and you know, for a while, in about 1957, they thought they were right because after rock, you know, up until that point, music had gone through a series of of, of faddish trends. And rock and roll was just considered to be another one of these faddish trends. Uh, and then we were going to move on to, apparently, in 57, Calypso. That was going to be the new thing. But, you know, the Beatles come along with the, with the basic, you know, four-man outfit, guitar, bass, and drums and vocals. And um, they just reset culture completely. You know, they didn't set out to do that, but they were, you know, a remarkable combination that were in the right place at the right time. That will never be duplicated, and it's uh, it, it it changed everything about Western culture and a lot of of cultures around the world. I mean, you think about how you know we hear stories about uh, the Beatles records being smuggled in behind the Iron Curtain and how they became a subversive, corrosive element on communism. And we hear the same sort of thing happening. Uh, where people emulated the Beatles in places like Indonesia back in the 1960s, some one of the most repressive countries on earth. And, and that brought youth uh, a sense of identity beyond what uh, the dictators were telling us. I mean, it goes on forever. So, uh, uh, yeah, not just Western culture, but the, the planet's culture. No, and I, I agree with you. You know, one of the things you talked about was the smuggling, smuggling of records. Um, I've actually spoken to people who have said, I learned to speak English from Beatle records, you know, that were smuggled back home. And it's like, now you could think of all the other things that the Beatles did to change the world, you know, the music and the movies. But then you just look at something as simple as that. that mm -hmm. I, someone learned to speak English from their music is, 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 a, is a pretty big deal. Yeah, I, uh, I, I totally agree. The, um, that's another one. We could say that the Beatles helped spread the English language. Yeah, that's a good one. So Beatles are broken up. So now we're talking about the solo years. Who do you think got it most right? Paul, no question. There are two types of people on this, on this earth. There are John people and Paul people. I'm firmly on the Paul side. I've seen him play live uh, a bunch of times. And I swear to God that at some point in the show, people will stand up, throw off their crutches and stand up out of their wheelchairs. It's that much of, a, of uh, a, an experience. And you you look at, I mean, a lot of the early stuff is Lennon McCartney, absolutely. But then you start getting past 67. A lot of it is, is you know, the Paul stuff. And it's, it's really, really good. And then, you know, the first three solo albums, yeah, you know, other than maybe I'm amazed, you know, that's that's the only song that I can think of from that era. But then he gets the band on the run, and then boom, um, you know, for the next three years, it's Paul McCartney, like he was another, he was in the Beatles again. Do you think it was Paul right from the get go, or at any point no. were they neck and neck? Was John, you know, was John on top at any point? Well, no, I, you know, it was George and Ringo that were on top at first. George, my uh, apologies. How dare I forget? All things must pass. One of the yeah. greatest Beatle solo Beatle albums ever. So, and we forget that in the early 1970s, before uh, either John or Paul 
had major hit singles, Ringo had a whole bunch, you know? Uh, so, so John and, and Paul were, were, came later after George and Ringo, which was really interesting. Yeah. And, and what I did there was the, the sort of the, the same mentality. I completely forgot about George. When you start talking about John and Paul, sadly, you sort of forget about George, you know, yeah. like they did. So you talked about, uh, you mentioned at the very beginning uh, that you had a chance to, you know, interview uh, Paul and Ringo. So my next question was, have you met any of the Beatles and what stories can you tell, tell us about that? Um, I got to talk to Paul at a press conference uh, about 20 years ago, and I was the last person to ask a question. And I was very conscious that I was talking to a man who had been a Beatle since he was 15 years old. He's probably heard every single question multiple times, a gazillion times. So how was I, my, this one opportunity to speak to the greatest living composer on planet Earth uh, and perhaps the universe, oh, what can I come up with a worthy question? So I thought about it and then it hit me. He had just gotten married to Heather Mills. So uh, my question went like this. Uh, congratulations on your recent marriage to Heather. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I have a question about the reception. What? Yes, uh, at the reception, you know, uh, Eric Clapton was there, Ringo was there, George was there. I mean, it was a really, really big deal uh, with all these stars, you know, Sting and, and, and so on. Did you did you have a, a live band or a DJ? I had a live band, of course. Do you think that they were a bit intimidated? <laughs> and there was this long pause and this weird expression got you know, came over Paul's face and he looked at me, he genuinely was puzzled. He says, no, why would they? So I stumped Paul McCartney. That's fantastic. I I, 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 that's, I'm sticking to that story. The other story is that uh, a couple of years ago, I was asked to, um, I was a lot, not asked, but I, 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 I got a chance to go to Abbey Road to listen to the 25th anniversary, no, the 50th anniversary release of the Abbey Road album. And, uh, you know, Giles Martin was there. It was set up in Studio Two. I had a nice big comfy couch. The album was played back in, uh, you know, 64 track glory. It was, it was, it was amazing. And it just so happened that because I was there, Ringo Starr had just released a, a new, a new book of photography. You want, you want to talk to him? Absolutely. So after the uh, the listing session, I jump in a cab and I head over to Kensington and I end up in this small room and I get 15 minutes with Ringo Starr. Wow. And for the first 10 minutes, we have to talk about his book. I'm sorry. It's a picture. Okay. I'm sorry. You're Ringo Starr. You were in the Beatles. Uh, I, I don't want... I, th that's That's what I care about. So anyway. At the end, I had five minutes left, and I said, you know, I'm going to be that guy and say that I play drums because of you. I had a Ludwig Oyster Pearl drum set just like you did on the Ed Sullivan show, and I you know, tried to play along to as many Beatle records as I can, as I could growing up. But I have a question, and it has to do with that drum fill that you play at the beginning of Come Together. And I've never been able to get it right. And so he explains that he was a, he's a natural left-hander. But when he was growing up, his aunt would smack him on the left hand every time he tried to write with that hand. So he became a functional right-hander 
But when it comes to playing darts, playing pool, playing golf, he stayed being a left-hander. However, back then it was too much trouble to haul around a lot of drums. So the only communal set of drums Ringo was faced with on a regular basis was set up for a right-handed player. So he played drums right-handed, but he uh, had this left-handed tendency that would always come out. And he explained to me that with Come Together, normally a right-handed drummer playing on a right-handed kit would lead with his right hand, which would go across the body, up onto the tom-tom, and then you would have to make a very odd sort of accent before you brought up your left hand and then basically go counterintuitively against how you would normally play down the toms to come up with that sound. And the, 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 the accents would be all wrong. And he says, the way I do it is that because I'm a left-hander, I lead to that tom with my left hand. I start the fill with my left hand, not my right. So that allows me to come up with that pattern as I go down the toms. So as he's explaining this to me, it occurs to me that I'm getting a drum lesson from Ringo Starr. And at that moment, I thought, I can't tell you how much I love my job and how much I, I'm so lucky to be doing this for a living. That's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. So a couple of uh, uh, controversial questions I'm going to ask you, because uh, people are sometimes hesitant to give their opinion on it. So the first one is, who would you consider the fifth Beatle? Brian Epstein, no question. Oh, no, no, no. I Stop, stop. George Martin. George, George, George Martin. Martin. You know, I mean, Epstein was a guiding light, but Martin was the guy who f- taught the Beatles, mentored the Beatles, shepherded the Beatles, encouraged the Beatles, uh, tamped down their worst excesses, and, uh, you know, wrote some brilliant arrangements that these guys did not know how to do. I mean, you know, would Eleanor Rigby be the hit that it is today if it hadn't been for George Martin's string quartet arrangement um, or, or a song like Yesterday, which which had its own arrangement or the idea of, of, of the final chord on, on A Day in the Life. I mean, that's George. And and I don't think, you know, if you, the more you dig into how these songs were recorded, the more you the more I wonder anyway uh, why George didn't get more of a songwriting credit. Yeah, considering no, I, too that he was being screwed out of so many royalties by EMI at the time, I, I just I just wonder. I mean, if you listen to some of the stuff in Sgt. Pepper, he's playing you know uh, a piano, he's doing this, he's actually performing, not only just arranging and producing, but he's performing on the records. And his performances sometimes are the things that alter the composition to the point where it, it goes from really good to oh my oh my god. Yeah. No, and, and one thing that I liked about the Get Back documentary is people who weren't so aware of that got to see a bit of that where uh, George steps up uh, at the piano and he, he lines the, um, uh, the piano strings with newspaper for Paul to get a bit of a, of a different sound. Mm-hmm. And it's just something like that. And it's like you've, you've changed something and like just unintentionally done. You're like, let's just try this. And he was definitely the, uh, I think, the motivating factor in so many of those sounds and those experimentations uh, that they the, did. The, the very speed tape machines, the the arrangements, the odd instruments. You know, Paul, for example, in Penny Lane is thinking, you know, I need something that's that that sounds different, and somehow he he 
talks to George and George suggests a piccolo trumpet, which nobody plays. And that's what we hear on, on Penny Lane. And, you know, his influence is, is incalculable. It really is. So the next question, I don't believe in it at all, but I like to ask people about it. The long and ongoing hyped uh, Stones versus the Beatles uh, rivalry. What do you have to say about that? I, I think it uh, is, is, you know, compared to what's going on today, one of the lamest rivalries in the history of music. I mean, they were friends. They hung out together. They traded songs. Yep. It, was, uh, it, it was very much an um, Andrew Lou Goldham thing, manager of the Rolling Stones, who uh, you know wanted to have this us versus them marketing campaign, and the Rolling Stones were were deliberately marketed as the anti Beatles, uh, even though they were you know, <laughs> anything but. Uh, you know, you compare that feud, which didn't exist, but that rivalry to Blur versus Oasis in the nineteen nineties, or any hip hop feud today. <laughs> right. it's nothing. It's nothing at all. So. How did the be? How did the Beatles influence you? I know you just you briefly mentioned about uh, playing drums and sort of taking up on that with Ringo. Was was that how? Was that was it Ringo that affected you the most, or was it the group at overall? And how did they affect you? Probably the group overall. Um, you know, I would every when I was growing up, a lot of this knowledge just sort of dripped out. You know, you would listen to the radio, you would hear from somebody else, you would see an album. You would hear second, third hand about something. Somebody would be talking about it at school. It wasn't, uh, you know, I was young enough so that I, I wasn't, you know, buying big monographs on, on the Beatles or, or anything like that. That came later. But uh, it was just something that I, they were so ubiquitous, even after they broke up, that you picked up on Beatles history by osmosis. I mean, they were always on the radio. And whenever the song was a song was playing on the radio, some DJ would say something about it, about the song, about the Beatles, about any one of them. And not only were Beatles albums on our songs on the radio, but you know, by the time we get to the mid seventies, you know, Ringo's on the radio, George is on the radio, Paul is on the radio, John is on the radio. I mean, it's it's and if if they're not doing solo stuff, they're, you know, John is 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 singing with David Bowie or or with Elton John or or something like that. And you know, so they were everywhere. You just sort of picked it up as you went along. The weird thing is, I think by the time we get to the late 1970s, there was a sense that the Beatles were done, played out. You know, their time had come and gone. But then uh, John is killed. And that somehow resets everything. And I think it was that, where, where it, now that he's gone, everybody sort of started re-examining, re-evaluating the Beatles' legacy. And uh, the band got bigger and bigger and bigger throughout the 1980s. And then in 1987, they became one of the last holdouts when it came to putting their music on compact disc. So, and they be, that's where it really took off too, is because all those, the new Beatles fans and the old Beatles fans uh, all started buying their records again in big numbers which led to the reissues and the anthologies and the box sets and everything else. So it's, it's hard to ask or answer questions that are sort of, you couldn't possibly know the answer, but you, you made a good point there. Do you think had John lived, do you think the Beatles would still be as popular as they are today? That's a really good question because 
his death was such a cultural shock. I'm not a sociologist, but I, I don't think so. Uh, although we have to look at technology and this move from vinyl to CD. That was also another really big part of the Beatles transition from what they were to what they are today. But John's death made everybody realize how precious that music was. And that after years of clamoring for some kind of, if not reunion, at least a reconciliation, uh, it's never going to happen now. It's over. That's done. And God, that's sad. That's scary. That's really, really tie into a little bit too much mortality. So uh, it's, it's, it would be interesting to, to have some sort of philosophical, sociological treaties on that. That's a, that's a good point. Uh, definitely well said. So do you think the, uh, the popularity of the Beatles will ever go away? You know, there was uh, an article in the New York Times magazine a number of years ago that sought to explain a prediction of what of today's music we would be listening to 100, 200, 300 years from now. Who would be our era's Beethoven or Tchaikovsky or right. uh, whatever? And uh, this writer made a pretty compelling case that with changes in technology, changes in attitude, changes in, 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 so, in, in musical expression and how music is consumed and how it's transmitted and all the rest of it, that uh, this era will be remembered for basic three-chord rock and roll with a 4-4 beat. And if that's it, it's going to be Chuck Berry. So in, in 300 years, we'll be talking about Chuck Berry and maybe not the Beatles. I don't necessarily see that happening. I mean, there was a, a big band leader in the 1920s, early 1930s named Paul Whiteman. And he was, he was huge. He was the Beatles of his day. But because he wrote a lot of sort of schmaltzy, really populist, really, you know, overly, you know, super mainstream music, uh, critics didn't like him. And because critics didn't like him, well, he was never given the credit that he may have received as a performer, as a musician, as a band leader, and all that sort of stuff. Instead, they they went to the you know the the musicians who they thought were cool, that they thought were you know critically well, they made them critically acclaimed. Now, there's no question that the Beatles are critically acclaimed. I, I, you know, so much has been documented, and so much has been written about them. And you know, even the last thing, the the, the new thing that's coming out, that has come out, I guess, is the Beatles number one collection and Apple Spatial Audio. Um, they find they keep finding new ways to bring the Beatles into the present. You know, and this is a band that existed essentially from '63 to early 1970. That's it. So it's about seven years. There's only so much material there, or yeah. is there? I mean, when you look at, for example, my my Abbey Road box set or my White Album box set, the amount of alternate material is. I mean, there's days of it yep. and people can't get enough because they want to know how those legendary songs happened. And if you can be a fly on the wall, like we are in the, uh, in the uh, get back documentary, <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty intoxicating. It, it really is. Yeah, no, it is. 
it, and and you're right. Like the the Beatle fans, the 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 heavy Beatle fans, like myself and yourself, we'll just we'll we'll, we'll take anything we can get, you know. And and we talk about this Peter Jackson director's cut, and I am I am hoping it comes out someday because I will sit there and I will happily watch 14 hours with with without a question. And you gotta and wonder, I, you know, how much, you know, how much more is out there? Number one, and number two. What sorts of things are going to come along that will cause us to buy them again? And, and uh, you know, for example, um, the original Let It Be album or Let, Let It Be movie, you know, done in that grainy 16 millimeter in mono. Well, Peter Jackson goes to a guy, I think, at the University of Chicago or University of Illinois, who's got this machine learning thing that is able to upscale 60 millimeter film to what's essentially 4k and uh, to separate all the mono tracks on those one of the recorded on one of those old Nagra tape machines into not just stereo but beyond stereo um, I had an opportunity to see a special press screening of get back which was 100 minutes everything all edited down. It was done just for press. So Peter Jackson uh, hosted the thing and um, we we got highlights from the, the nine hours. And at the beginning, what he did was said, okay, and we're watching this at the Bell Lightbox. So we have a really good screen, a really good projector. And uh, he says, here's the original footage. And you see this little square in the middle of the screen and it's all grainy and there's scratches on the film. You know, this is the original. This is what I had to work with. But through machine learning, we were able to do this. And that little box on the screen expands to fill the full screen. And there's a, there's a gasp in the audience because it's so pristine and perfect. And then he says, here's one of these Nagra tape machines, which looks like an old cassette machine. Uh, you know, they recorded everything in mono. And that's just, I mean, that's the way they were doing everything up until that point. So again, we employed machine learning and we were able to do this. So they're playing, I don't know, it's either get back or let it be. I can't remember which. And if we employ the machine learning, this happens. And it goes from this uh, cone of sound that's coming from the center of the screen to this ultra surround sound situation where you've never heard the music in that fidelity ever again. And again, the crowd goes, um, so that's how that that's, that's the thing that brought us, brought the Beatles into the present today with technology that is just super cutting edge. So what super cutting edge technology is going to happen in the future. That's going to bring the Beatles into the future, uh, again, or into the present again. Well, one of the things, you know, when you're talking about that, that reminded me is, um, a lot of fans think that because, uh, thankfully, because Paul and Ringo are still with us, there's still a very uh, sort of tight lockdown on what extra or more might be out there. And they're saying that, uh, heaven forbid, uh, that day happens when uh, Paul and Ringo are no longer with us, that there might be more that we just we've never heard before and that we might. Yeah, the stuff that they're sitting on, the stuff yeah. that's in Paul's estate. Yeah, uh, it's it's true. I, I try not to think about a, a time when there are no living Beatles. I, I I can't imagine 
I can't imagine what that would be. The world can't imagine what that would be like. So um, I, I prefer not to think about it, but you're probably right. These guys would have had um, archives or maybe in, for example, in their wills, uh, ordering that certain things be released or be hidden yep. after their death. So I don't know. You know, and, and I know, um, you know, that Paul holds on to things very tightly and rightfully oh, yes. so. Well, he's you got know, that what? first, he managed to track down that first ever quarryman acetate that was made in that guy's living room back in Liverpool. That's right. Uh, okay. um, what else you got, dude? Yeah. Well, he's, he's a huge collector, apparently. Um, you, I don't, you can't find a lot of stuff about it, but one of the coolest things that I read about a few years ago that he has is the railing from the old EMI building that they took that photo from and he has it in his studio, okay. <laughs> which I think is um, like, like, can you talk about the biggest beetle collectible is, is like a, the railing that they took the photo from <laughs> uh, photos from photos. Uh, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. And just think about all, you know, the handwritten lyrics, uh, the candid photos, the demos that must be lying around someplace. And let's not even forget about, you know, the instruments that must be in a, in a warehouse somewhere Yeah, that go all the way back to the early 60s. And, and you know, I know that, um, you know, Yoko Ono's still with us, thankfully. Love Yoko. She still has a lot of John Lennon stuff. Now, even though towards sort of the end of the 70s, uh, they sort of the synopsis was the Beatles, you know, weren't weren't as, as, as hip and with it. Uh, John really, as much as... When the Beatles broke up, he was done with it. Uh, towards the mid '70s and on, he became to appreciate it a bit more. Uh, and there's a story that uh, the first uh, Beatle Fest in 1974, he'd heard about it, and he was actually planning on going down. But then he thought, yeah, you know what? That might not be such a good idea. Uh, but that he apparently sent May Pang with a fistful of money to go down there and buy up all this Beatles stuff. <laughs> and from that point on, he apparently collected a lot of uh, Beatles memorabilia. So, you know, Ooh. I'm sure the John Lennon estate has a lot of stuff as well. So I would imagine. Yes. Yes. And of course, Yoko has been very much about preserving John's legacy. I mean, that's that's really her career. Oh, absolutely. Uh, after, he, after he died. So uh, Yoko being Yoko, I'm going to guess that there's some pretty amazing stuff squirreled away somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe someday we'll know and uh, maybe someday we won't. But uh, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm good with that either way. Alan, this has been absolute pleasure. Uh, before we wrap up, I'm going to do the regular Beatles uh, segment, Get to Know the Beatles Fan. So I've got four questions for you. Okay, go. Well, the first one, uh, favorite Beatle? Paul. And... I'll rank them this way. You know what? I'm going to be really controversial. I'll even rank them. Paul Ringo, George. Paul Ringo, George, John. The more I read about John, the more I understand that he was not a very likable guy. Yeah, there's a lot of stories. I mean, uh, you know, no one's perfect, but uh, it's, that's actually an interesting ranking. I think that's the first time I've heard someone rank John last. It's usually Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> and so what about your favorite album? Abbey Road. Uh, it's the first album that was recorded totally in stereo. It was the first album to feature synthesizer. Uh, and it is an album that features 
George Harrison's two greatest songs. And what about your favorite song? Woof. Uh, it, it vacillates between A Day in the Life and Hey Jude. Um, when I go see, when you see Paul McCartney live, Hey Jude is one of the last things that he does. And uh, it's, it's impossible not to get caught up in, in, in that. Um, but as a piece of studio composition, uh, A Day in the Life is just absolutely, you know, especially for 1967. I mean, that would have been recorded, uh, you know, April, May, 67. I mean, wow, what, what a triumph in terms of, you know, they were using four track machines, four track machines. And um, a number of years ago, I, I have a friend that works for Universal. Universal owns Abbey Road. I pulled some strings. I went for a tour. And I'm walking with this woman in Gloria through Studio Two. And of course, it's like a church to me. I mean, this is Studio Two. And it looks, today's Studio Two looks exactly like it did in 1967. You know, the parquet floors, the acoustic tiling, there's the staircase that leads up to the control room. Uh, and, and they even have a bunch of instruments pushed against the wall. And there's one upright piano that's labeled Lady Madonna Piano. Do not touch. And then there was another piano next to it. And I said, what's this? And Gloria tells me, oh, that's one of the five pianos they used for the final chord on A Day in the Life. The other four are around here somewhere. <laughs> and you're just, just tossing it off. And meanwhile, I'm going, that made that sound. So, yeah. That must have been absolutely amazing. I, I, I honestly can't imagine what it was like to just stand there even decades later there, there had to be a, a a vibe still oh god it's it's overwhelming i mean like i say you might as well be in the church of the holy sepulchre i mean it's just wow and so the last one's favorite beetle look so that could be you know a fashion style a costume or, or even a time frame yeah, you know, I'm not a fan of the, uh, the facial hair. <laughs> I'm, I'm really not a fan of the facial hair, except except for George. He looked good with uh, with a beard and mustache. Um, let's go uh, mid '66. Still got the long hair. It's getting cleaned up a little bit. They got better bangs. Haven't quite gone for the facial hair yet. Uh, still youthful, still vibrant, still twinkly-eyed. Yeah, there. Good answer. Uh, Alan, this has been an absolute joy for me and a thrill. I am so pleased you were able to come up and, and uh, talk to me and discuss Beatles. Is there is there anything you got coming up that you want to talk about? Uh, no, not necessarily. Um, I'll just show you. I do these speaking engagements that I call salons, and these salons are um, an opportunity for like-minded people to come together and talk about music and radio and all the other sort of stuff. Um, and if, if somebody were to show up and say they want to talk about the Beatles for an hour, I'd be happy to do it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm going to make sure I provide uh, you know a link to your webpage and all your social media, and I'm going to highly recommend uh, that you, my listeners, check out Alan Cross. Um, he is, as I mentioned at the top of my show, a- an absolute legend in Canadian broadcasting. Uh, not to make you blush, but y- like you really are. Um, oh, dear. And my, um, yeah, I wish I weren't, weren't in the basement. My wife was upstairs watching some sort of stupid real estate show. Maybe you could, maybe you could call her. <laughs> Alan, thank you so much for joining me. You take care and you stay safe. You bet. Take care. Bye. 
Thanks for listening today. I had a really, really fun time. It was so great talking to Alan. I'm going to be sure to put all the links for Alan's social media and to his website, A Journal of Musical Things, so you can check it out. I can't, I can't recommend him enough. Thanks again for listening today. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me by email, Twitter, and Facebook, and I'll include all those links in the description. Until next time, you take care. Keep safe.